Hello, I'm Amber Athey, Washington editor of The Spectator, and I'm here to tell you about our fantastic new election offer. Go to spectator.us slash election offer and subscribe to get three months free access to The Spectator US website and our new app available on the Apple and Google Play stores. Make sure you're getting the very best coverage and commentary in the run-up to November 3rd. Find out more at spectator.us slash election offer. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast. This is an election year. Will Donald Trump be re-elected? What is going on with the Democrats? And has America gone even more crazy? We'll be discussing all of these things and more, more than once a week, because we don't feel you have enough Americano in your life. I'm joined today by Marcus Roberts, who is head of international projects at YouGov, the pollster. And Marcus, you have released today your MRP, which is your final poll, really, your, your, the summary of your polls to say what you think is going to happen in the election tomorrow night. Don't tell us what MRP stands for. It's far too complicated. Actually, do, because it's quite funny. Oh, the multi-level regression and post-stratification model that FAIR rolls off the tongue. Yes, and I'm not even going to ask you to begin to explain what that means. But if you could possibly give us a summary of where you think the race lies as we are talking right now. Okay, I will give you a small explanation, which is that MRP is a model of polls, data and analytics, including everything from the latest census returns through to demographic and socioeconomic data, through to a bucket ton of battleground state and national polling information, all mixed up together to give a projection of what we believe the result is at a granular level. And this is the same modelling technique that was used with great efficacy in UK general elections lately that indicated early on that Hillary Clinton was in trouble in the Rust Belt in 2016, and that was used to over 95% accuracy in the US midterms in 2018. So this is our really best and final call as to what's happening. Am I right in saying, I don't, I don't want to be critical of you guys, but am I right in saying that this model was getting it right in 2016, and then you started weighting things against it because you, you didn't quite believe what you were seeing? Yeah, I think there was a clash between the national polling, the battleground polling and the MRP. And at that time, we didn't have enough confidence in this as as an emerging statistical approach. And we backed our traditional battleground state polling instead. And in retrospect, that was clearly an error. So what we've done now is we've put far more emphasis, of course, on the MRP approach. And that's been borne out to great success in other elections that we've seen around the world. So what we're seeing now in terms of this projection is a clear advantage to Vice President Biden, 53.2% to 44.3%. And that translates per our MRP into an electoral college win of 364 to 174, a Biden landslide. So that's a very strong projection coming out of the MRP tonight. We'll have to see whether that's borne out by the results tomorrow and in the days and weeks to come. A Biden landslide is a bold call. There's a lot of doubt, even amongst um, non-Republican pollsters, I think, that it would be so convincing. What makes you so sure? And which states do you see going Democrat that uh, other pollsters don't? Well, the critical thing is that we agree with the vast majority of serious, responsible and professional pollsters that Joe Biden stands in very good stead in Michigan, Pennsylvania and Wisconsin. 
where we have RMRP showing a Biden position of seven points or more in those three crucial Rust Belt states. And that's allowed Joe Biden to rebuild the blue wall. Beyond that, we're seeing better numbers than some for Vice President Biden in Arizona with a 51 to 45 percent lead. And we're even seeing, in contrast with some of the skepticism of late on Florida, a Biden win there of 51 to 46 percent. And even if that suffered from a serious polling mistake of perhaps as much as three or four percent, that would still be enough to see Vice President Biden with a comfortable win in the Electoral College. And that's what makes this election so very different from 2016, which is you would need a polling error of over double what we saw in 2016 in order for there to be a realistic Trump path to 270. But beyond those states, we see some of the stretch goals with a Biden position of nearly three points up in Georgia, a Biden position of nearly three points up in North Carolina, and Biden perilously close to pulling into the lead in Texas, where the MRP shows him trailing by just 0.2% on Trump. Interestingly, though, the MRP shows a different picture in the rest of the Rust Belt, with Ohio and Iowa still in the president's column. And imagine, Freddie, if eight years ago in the 2012 election, we'd been talking about a Democratic landslide that didn't involve Ohio or Iowa, but did involve Texas or Georgia somehow, we'd have thought we were in a parallel universe. That explains just how dramatically, radically changed America's demographics, socioeconomics and politics have been in recent years. Well, yes, because the, the old mantra was where Ohio goes, so goes the nation. It was a, it was seen to be a bellwether state. Very much so. And that's why I spent some of my formative years in campaigning back when I worked for the Democratic National Committee, Associated Campaign Committees, actually in the state of Ohio in 2004 and 2008. So I've seen what it looks like to lose Ohio and I've seen what it looks like to win Ohio. And the idea that actually an election could take place with Ohio as a non-factor is really just a startling thing indeed. The Trump path to victory at the moment, the way that Donald Trump could win, involves definitely winning Florida, definitely securing the Sun Belt, so Texas and Arizona, and then, then they'd go up north to the Midwest, and then he'd have to win Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania. You just don't see that happening. You don't see the first part of that happening, let alone the second part. Is that a fair assessment? Yes, because the degree of polling mistake, as I was saying, would have to be so vast. It would have to be on a scale of double the error in 2016. And to remember that as an industry, we really think we've cracked the mainstay of the problem that led to the polling misjudgment at the battleground state level in 2016. And that's given President Trump probably a roughly three-point advantage in this election over what his polls would have been showing four years ago. So if you were to compare apples to apples, all of these Biden numbers would be three points up above what they currently are if you were using the same methodology that we used for the Hillary Clinton-Donald Trump race of 2016. And that's again why we have more confidence in these numbers this time around. Well, uh, you say you have confidence. Do you not get nervous? at this time of year. It must be nerve-wracking for a pollster because you're putting your credibility on the line every time. You, are you a bit tense? Oh, sure. I think it's only human and as someone who previously had to eat their hat because they called 2016 wrong, it would be surprising if I wasn't a little bit nervous at times. 
But I and others have to make a decision, which is, do we want to go with our gut and our fear of nervousness with regard to calling this election, or do we want to be led by the data? And our responsibility as pollsters is to report on what the data is showing, not to have an emotional view of that data. And that's why it's so clear when the MRP and when battleground state polling and when other respectable pollsters like the New York Times Siena is showing all of these numbers so very positively for one side rather than the other, when other credible modelers like The Economist's Good Work by G. Elliott Morris and, the, and his team by the reasonable polling averages, 538 rather than real clear politics, I should say, are showing these commanding positions for the vice president in the states that matter most, namely Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania, we have a responsibility to call the race as we see it. And our final call is saying that a Biden position is far more likely than anything else in terms of victory. Let's say it does start to be tomorrow night's results do start to go against what you've predicted. What will be the surprises? What will be the early warning signs that something is wrong between the reality of the vote and the pollsters' expectations? That's a great question and a great exercise. I think I'd be looking to see Biden's numbers in the Florida suburbs weaker. I'd expect to see his much vaunted inroads with blue collar white Americans and with senior citizen Americans down from what we were expecting in terms of the margins. I'd expect to see African-American turnout closer to the 2016 number than the 2012 number. And I'd expect to see the GOP continuing to make inroads, particularly in the Hispanic community, as it has been doing for some time. If all of those things were in place uh, from some of the early returns, and we'd likely to get those indications from Florida in particular very early on in the night, then I'd say the president was looking to have a better night in the pollsters, a worse one, as well as a way worse night for Joe Biden. Well, yes, as I understand it, and you've explained to me before, that Florida's vote counting process is quite efficient. It has already counted the early votes. So you could be talking about exit polls at 5 p.m. perhaps being quite reliable, something like that, or is that too soon? I would say that is still too soon, and I would really caution everyone to be wary of any exit polls, because the exit polls that we'll have are A, likely to be, if anything, somewhat biased in favour of the Democrats, as exit polls have tended to be over the last few cycles, and B, it's very difficult to know how to exit poll this election correctly, given the extreme X factors of the scale of historic early voting, the enormous projected number of final ballots, perhaps approaching 160 million Americans voting, 65, 66, 67% turnout, maybe even more. All of that's going to require the those responsible for the exit polls, I think, to take more time rather than less time before they give out numbers that are really uh, dependable. And that's why I would caution any listeners to perhaps treat early exit poll returns with a pinch of salt. The two sort of um, cliches now almost that um, people who think there might be a surprise on the night are using our social desirability bias and this idea that the Democrats might be cannibalizing their own vote with all their early voting on election day. Can you explain those two things and what you might look for on election night to see if those things are happening? Sure. So in the first instance, the social desirability bias argument is put up by some of the more 
pro-Trump pollsters, such as Rasmussen Polls or the Trafalgar Group. And in those instances, they say that voters, for whatever reason, are unlikely or more skeptical about sharing their view of support for for President Trump than, say, Biden voters. It should be noted that we have seen very little, if any, academic evidence of this or scientific evidence in polling of this. And indeed, when we've tried different methodologies to try and address this question in experimental terms, we've not really been able to unveil or reveal anything of this. Remember that the polling industry has every incentive to try and find this out, if that is indeed the case, because it's our business to get these things right. It's not our business to get it wrong. And that's why social desirability bias, if anything, might be something of a figment or mirage in this election. And I wonder sometimes a little bit about the potential, not of the shy Trump voter, as there's been very little evidence of anything shy about Donald Trump's supporters in this election cycle, a little more perhaps around the shy Biden voter, which is an underexplored phenomenon and perhaps something that could be important, particularly amongst senior voters, blue-collar voters, and suburban voters. And they're going to be so crucial to revealing what happens in the swing states uh, tomorrow. So those are some of the the, the key factors around social uh, desirability bias that I think tends to treat that with a little bit of scepticism. I'm sorry, you had a a second point of explanation you wanted to touch on. The Democrats cannibalising their own vote with all the early voting. Yeah, uh, so this has been a, a real concern on the Biden campaign's part. To what extent are they just reaching into their existing voter coalition and taking it out early, or are they managing to reach into new voters, so-called lower propensity voters, younger voters, African-American, Hispanic voters, blue-collar converts uh, from Trump 2016, the famous Obama-Trump voters of the Rust Belt, senior citizens again who had voted for the president previously in Florida. So the Democrats have been worried about that phenomenon, and that's why they're going to be watching very carefully to see how does turnout play out on the election day itself. We've heard all of these amazing stories about early vote turnout that are really extraordinary, particularly with regard to Texas. But I have every reason to believe, and the polls have shown this as well, that President Trump will have a very, very high score indeed himself in terms of election day turnout. One of the patterns we've seen internationally indeed, whether it's Modi in India, Scott Morrison in Australia, or Boris Johnson in the UK, is the ability of right-wing strong so-called populist leaders, to generate even more support upon re-election efforts for their party than was initially the case. So I have every expectation that the Republicans will be turning out a larger number of voters for President Trump tomorrow than was the case in 2016. The question will be the gap between them and the Democrats with regard to election day turnout versus early vote turnout in order to work out whether or not the Democrats have succeeded in adding large numbers of new voters to their column or whether they have, as you said, simply cannibalized the vote so far. The other thing that Democrats will be fearing is this red wave that Donald Trump keeps talking about, which I think you alluded to just there, which is an unprecedented, enormous turnout of Trump's base and parts of Trump's base that perhaps pollsters still are unable to identify. Yeah, I think less so the latter, as I'm pretty sure we've got an accurate grip on the degree of the president's support and indeed the degree of a very favourable election day support for the president. But it will likely lead to something of a red mirage in the early hours of election night, in which, as some of those states which are not counting early vote at all until later, are tallying up 
disproportionately Republican ballots early on. And that's going to lead to the appearance, perhaps even in a state as crucial as Pennsylvania, possibly the most important state in this election, that the president is actually winning at the beginning. Why? Because they're only counting the on-the-day ballots first, and they're counting the early vote votes, which are more disproportionately Democratic, later. And that may give the president a chance to declare victory early, even if it's the case that as all of the votes come to be counted over time, this red mirage fades away to be replaced by the reality potentially of a blue wave. And that is the, that, that's another fear that um, among Democrats that Trump will declare victory on the night if the map is looking pretty red at, say, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock. And that would cause a certain amount of instability in the country, it's fair to say. I think that Democrats were more worried about that before, but the more the president has spoken about his intention to declare victory, the more sceptical, even, shall we say, the commentators and broadcasters and presenters of Vox News have become about their willingness to really to convey that message with authority in terms of calling any states to support that position. That, that is interesting, though, isn't it? Because it could, let's say there is a shock Trump win, and the, the media, I mean, Facebook and social media and the, and the large networks, including Fox, uh, perhaps, have sort of promised that they aren't going to declare a winner uh, unless they have absolute certainty. And so there might be a situation where actually Trump has one and he starts declaring victory and everybody says, no, it's not, it's not over, even if it clearly is over. I don't think that's going to be the case because in such a scenario, we'd have seen from the actual results of those states that are counting very quickly, Florida and Georgia amongst them, that the president had clearly won. And you would see very credible commentators saying that. And that would, of course, feed back in terms of the decisions being made by the decision desks at the different major broadcasters to make their calls accordingly. And I think that it's important to bear in mind that even if we don't get a result in the first few hours, we will get a result. American elections have never been decided in the first few hours. They've always taken time to count the votes. Any number of these states have creaking architectures when it comes to their vote counting processes, and that takes time. Some states are better than others, and actually we're very lucky in this respect that Florida has had, since the debacle of, of 2000, as much effort, attention, and money put into its processes so that it's a much improved state. Georgia, in a similar fashion, after some of the shambles of the 2018 election night, has improved considerably. And Pennsylvania, which is experimenting for the first time this cycle with large-scale early voting, even though it's going to be a little bit slower, as I was saying, in terms of first paying attention to the election day vote and later to the early vote, Pennsylvania looks to have a reasonably robust process. And the election desk callers at each of the broadcasts uh, centres are really seriously professional people and they will make good judgments in good time as to what the result is, even if it goes in a surprising direction and especially if it goes in the surprising direction because they'll have access to the data and they'll be making decisions professionally accordingly to that. Finally, Marcus, uh, you did have to eat your hat in 2016. It seems to me with this MRP... Uh, which I did, which I did. You're a man of your word. <laughs> I think this time you're probably going to have to offer to eat your hat and your scarf because you're sounding so confident of a Biden win. Will you promise to do that? I will. And I'll, I'll say this because I think the lesson from 2016 was that low probability events sometimes happen. And the low probability event in 2016 was the Trump win. 
but it wasn't as low a probability as we believed at the time. The lesson I think that we're going to take away from 2020 is that high probability events happen more often. And the high probability likelihood of tomorrow is that Biden win. And as a consequence, I'm willing to take you up on the bet. Well, we shall. Uh, I hope you can join me on Thursday where we will unpack what has happened. Would be my pleasure. I've always enjoyed doing this and I wish you and your listeners very well and happy election day. And if you are an American citizen and able to vote, please do vote. There we go. Thank you very much, Marcus. 